Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Eddie Louise, writer of the Sage and Savant audio drama podcast, has lived one of the most fascinating creative journeys I've ever heard. She has followed her curiosity from the libraries of Wyoming to undergraduate studies in Edinburgh and back to California, and absolutely none of it has happened in the way anyone is told a life story is supposed to unfold. We talk about her first adventures with Shakespeare, the unexpected detour in high school, how she got to Edinburgh, and of course, the genesis of Sage and Savant. There's a lot here about daring to take chances and step out of the cave our society tends to want to tell us is the only safe place to be. Here's my conversation with Eddie Louise. Eddie Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nancy. I'm really glad to be here. You and I talked about this for the first time at a steampunk event at COGS. We did. And I had to look to see when it was. It was three years ago, which blew my mind. I'd have sworn it was two, but then I realized we kind of lost the last year. So it all comes out in the wash, right? (laughs) Yeah. Two functional years and uh, who knows what year. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I talked to you guys when I was just thinking about starting this podcast. Yeah, and, and look you what you've filled built. me in on all the cool stuff. It was great. <laughs> so, I'm I'm curious to know because I know, I know you have an interesting story with lots of fabulous little twists and turns that I can remember parts of, but not all of. So. I'm curious to know how you discovered that you had a creative streak. Was it when you were a kid? Were you a little bit older? What happened? I actually knew at a very, very young age that I viewed the world differently than other people did. So I remember listening to the trees singing to each other when I was maybe three or four years old. And when I tried to tell the adults that the trees were singing, um, I was, you know, poo-pooed and told that that wasn't possible. Um, then I remember the older kids when I was about six, slamming together the salt and pepper shakers and me getting quite visibly upset and crying because it was hurting them. And they said, what do you mean it's hurting them? And I says, it makes all their insides jiggle and move and, and, and it upsets them. Um, and I got ridiculed for that a huge amount, but I had two things really going for me against a very large family that was full of older boys that were full of teasing and hair pulling. (laughs) One was a mother who assigned me books like crazy. I do know now as an adult, that was to get me out of her hair. And because Mm -hmm. I would go read (laughs) silently, it was an easy way to shut me up, but also it was a gift. And when I was in third grade, we lived a very long way out of town. We lived on a cattle ranch, um, 40 miles from the nearest town. And when I say town, it was a village of about a thousand people. Um, And we went to town once a month. And so I got to go to the library one time per month. And because of the fact that we could only come back once a month, um, I was only allowed five books. And five books was enough for a week not a month. So um, I had a lot of trouble with that, Um, even trying to begging my brothers and sisters to check out books that I would like, because most of them only ever wanted one or two books for the time. 
And the summer of my third grade year, I ran out of books and it was still three weeks till library time. And my mother was at her wits end. So she said, read Little Lord Fauntleroy. I've read it. You know, read all of the Nancy Jews. I've read them. Read all the Hardy. I've read them. Mom. And she finally got fed up and she handed me the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> and she said, here you go. Read it. You're not going to understand it but read it. And I went, ha, I'll prove to you I can understand because I'm a good reader. And I sat down to read it and she was correct. I didn't understand it. And when I came, but I read every page and I came back to the end and I went, okay, I read it. What next? And she said, now you're going to read it again. And she said, this time you'll start to notice that that those words have a rhythm to them, like a song and see if you can figure that out. So I sat down to read it for the rhythm and to figure out those iambic feet. And pretty soon I was reading in iambic feet, which is totally the wrong way to perform Shakespeare, by the way. If you perform strictly by the iambic feet, no one will ever understand what's happening. You have to break that in certain places to get the emotion through. But the thing is, it's so musical. And I read it through and I loved the music of it. And when I went back the third time, I did it voluntarily because now I was beginning to understand the stories. I was beginning to understand that this was a king fighting to keep his kingdom, or this was a king at the end of his life trying to decide, you know, how to wrap up his time as monarch and whether one of his daughters would take it or his, their, their husbands and all of that political stuff. I understood that the fairies were capricious and full of humor and like to play tricks on the humans. So I went back to read it and really understand it. So I read Shakespeare, the complete works of Shakespeare, three times over a summer. And it was the most amazing, mind-blowing thing. I've never met a text that I can't understand now, if not in first reading. I'm dogged enough to go back. And so I read a lot of scholarly journals, a lot of really deep scientific journals for my podcast, the, the audio drama, The Tales of Sage and Savant, I read neuroscience and I read physics until it was coming out of my ears and I read <laughs> philosophy. Um, and I can incorporate all those things now. So once I passed that point, it was about eight years old when that happened. Once I passed that point, it was like the whole world opened up to me and libraries became treasure chests. I literally worship at the altar of libraries because the knowledge is in there. Even if it's not physically in that building, there is a person in that building called a reference librarian who can bring you that knowledge. Any question you have, any question that humanity has encountered in all of their time, and even if you have a question that humanity has not yet encountered and written about, there will be references pointing towards the same question from so many other people. And so it's just, it's, it's magic. It literally is the, the most mind-numbing and magical place in the world. And uh, it, it, it amazes me that so many people, like, it, it would be like saying, oh, here's your magic wand. Would you like a magic wand? And people going, nah, not really. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. So for me, um, that just opened it up. And then there was no choice but a creative life for me. Um, because I had to find ways to do what Shakespeare did. I had to find ways to synthesize the things that my librarians opened, the doors they opened for me. So 
So were you the librarian's favorite kid? You must have been. <laughs> Either that or you were the most annoying kid. There's really only two options. I think it was kind of both. Once they figured out that all I needed was channeling and that I could be channeled, then it was, oh good, Eddie's here with one of her bizarre out of the way questions. So I mentioned noting that the trees sing and that the salt shakers um, were being hurt by being smashed together. Um, we learned this century that trees do speak to each other and that there is a um, sub vocal range of communication that happens in plants and in trees that we can now pick up with our modern recording devices. And there's a wonderful recording of a man out there um, recording his houseplants, responding to different musical tones. And um, so we know that and we learned we learned that about tree communication um, at the towards the end of John Muir's life as he was doing his whole redwood preservation and doing all that and he was discovering that trees send messages during fires and they inferl to to limit the damage that can happen to a redwood um, they will pull all their uh liquid to the center core to keep their their tree alive even if everything burns off the outside and they communicate one to another to cause that and it can happen even as much as two days before a fire comes through a forest and so that the trees sing to each other and then um just about two years ago maybe three years ago it was recent again um that time suck of the thing um physicists mapped that even inert atoms become excited when they hit a situation like the container that's holding them being slammed together. And the atoms become excited and they move and they dance. And they now think it might actually be an expression of pain or of distress. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I kind of have to, when my brain gives me something weird now, I just go with it because it's me sensing something that is out there that I must need to know about. So that causes, sure. you know, research rabbit holes. And <laughs> oh, well, research rabbit holes are the best anyway. They not. You know, I mean, sometimes they're the worst when you're really supposed to be doing something else and you're torn about it. But otherwise... There's, there's nothing quite like falling down the rabbit hole just because you were curious about something. One of my favorite um, TikToks is a librarian who does that. You know, she falls down rabbit holes and it began with her talking about the rabbit holes that she found herself in her own work as a librarian. But it's gotten to the point now where people listen to her and they'll listen to one video and go, okay, well, what about this? So mm -hmm. she did a fall down the hole of sea sponges. And then that became a whole, the next one was all about how the Romans wiped their bottoms after going to the bathroom. <laughs> You know, and so wonderful. Um, so that's uh, Amber, Amber Morel, I think is her name. Anyway, on TikTok, if you took Amber plus rabbit holes, you'd find her. And on TikTok, it's okay. wonderful. I'm going to have to go look for that. <laughs> Just because now I'm curious what else she's looked at. But it's a lot. A lot of fun stuff. A lot. <laughs> so... How did all of this creativity come out when you were still in school, aside from, you know, inhaling the complete works of Shakespeare three times in a summer? 
my first major writing project was after my family had taken me to see the old-fashioned melodrama in South Dakota. <laughs> and melodramas are actually based on 19th century morality plays. And morality plays were very heavy-handed. There was a, a kind-hearted heroine or hero. There was an evil, dastardly villain. And if you drank or gambled or did anything profligate with your money, you were going to fall prey to the villain. And what's happened is there's this Western art form called the melodrama, which has taken that framework and turned it into almost a cartoon. And for people of yours and my age, they might remember uh, Dudley Do-Right from mm -hmm. Rocky and Bullwinkle. That's a melodrama. And they'd taken me to see the melodrama in South Dakota. And I fell in love with the villain who spoke in alliterations. <laughs> and so I set about writing a melodrama where I could do everything with alliterations, where the villain did nothing except P letter alliterations. So um, he was his, the villain's name was Pete and he was pernicious and a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> of course he was. <laughs> and I wrote that full length play. Um, and even with breaks for the Oleo review, which is a song and dance. And I convinced my um, elementary school to perform it. And so we performed it and to great acclaim, this was Wyoming. Um, <laughs> so that's, you know, right up, right up Wyoming people's. And that was my first taste of having something that I had written live outside of me. And that was addictive. So um, in high school, I wrote two or three more uh, one act plays. I won a one act play competition at the state competition level. And at the same time, I got into the speech and debate club and found that I was really good at two things. One was extemporaneous speaking, where they give you a topic, you have three minutes to prepare, and then you're to speak on that topic for, um, depending upon your division, three minutes, five minutes, or 10 minutes. And I worked up to the A division where I was speaking for 10 minutes and also original oratory, which was um, basically a TED talk. You know, basically you're writing a TED talk and convincing people of your point of view. Um, and I did both of those and I had a great deal of fun. That was my first kind of foray into nonfiction or speech related writing that wasn't telling a story, but was still persuasive. And mm -hmm. that was really fun. And then I did a lot of acting and we did uh, Shakespeare in the Park. Um, the kids got together and decided we were going to perform a Shakespeare play and do it in the park. And the adults kind of looked at us like we were insane. Um, but we said we would anyway, and we did. And, um, that got attention. Cheyenne is about 90 miles, um, North of Denver, Colorado, and Denver's a much, much bigger city. Um, but it just happened one of the days that we were performing our version of Taming of the Shrew that the Denver Post theater critic was driving through Cheyenne for whatever reason. He saw our posters and on a whim, he bought his lunch and came to sit and watch our play. And he wrote us up in the Denver Post and gave us an amazing review. Um, he called me Broadway bound, which was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, um, and that was, so, you know, I've kind of had that drive for curiosity from all three sides. Um, I 
reading and constantly, um, you know, inhaling books. Right now I'm on a kick where I've given myself a year where I'm, I'm, I'm reading books only by authors of color or authors from countries other than my own um, because I need to broaden my expanses a little. Um, so I, I'm very much into absorbing creativity from others, um, writing for people that are going to present it outwards and do that. And then performing other people's words out myself is, is like, you know, so it's kind of, if I can find a way to shoehorn it in, I'll do it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So then I know that, um, your life took an interesting turn in high school and after high school and the director of Taming of the Shrew was a very, very intriguing and handsome redhead named Chip (laughs) and Chip stepped into my life. Well, no, he came, you know how when superheroes land in a movie, there's that big kathunk, that noise. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of how Chip landed in my life. <laughs> um, and everything changed from that point. I really had been, I, I was going to audition for Tisch School in NYC. And um, I had everything planned. I was going to be a Broadway baby. That was my entire focus. And then Chip came into my life and we got pregnant. And so the unfortunate thing about that is that this was, you know, 1980 and Wyoming was not very evolved towards mm-hmm. pre tween, uh, teenage mothers. And um, there was a lot of uh, condemnation from greater society, a lot of, you know, shutting down and a lot of opportunities. The doors just slammed one after another. Um, but I'm nothing if not optimistic. And, um, you know, Chip was in for from the very beginning, it's like the day I, I kind of felt I was pregnant and I said, Hey, I need to talk to you. And he went, you're pregnant. And I went, (laughs) yeah, I think so. And he went, okay, what are we going to name our baby? And that was it. There was no angst. There was no, we knew we were together. And so that was my saving grace. And it was kind of the two of us against the world for quite a while. Um, He joined the army because there's no way we could afford college with you know, being teens and pregnant. And so he joined the army and that took us to California. And in California, in one of those threads of the life, we lived in an apartment two blocks away from California's first theater where they performed melodramas. (laughs) Specifically, their shtick was performing the actual late Victorian age morality plays. So they had the original scripts and um, original music and um, they, they performed them and in oftentimes in original clothing from the era because the theater had been uh, performing in that building since like 1860 something. And the whole attic was filled with the costumes that had been used from even that point. So wow. the chances are, if I was playing a Southern belle in a thing, there was an actual Southern bells dress that they put me in. And that was really cool. Um, and we got our kids involved too. Both of my children turned out to be very articulate and wonderful performers. And so we were doing shows in Monterey, California, 
Um, it began with just, you know, oh, four or five shows a year, that's manageable. But by the time the kids were eight and 10, we had a summer, a three month period where there were 16 shows between the four of us. And only two of those had all four of us in them, all the rest, it was just divided out. Ooh. And we were running ourselves ragged. And it was like, you know, we started doing theater for family togetherness, and this isn't working. <laughs> Um, so then we went to do Renaissance fairs um, and we performed at Renaissance fairs and um, grew our own group that was uh, the court of Mary Queen of Scots. And this is where um, my husband's interest in history kind of infected me. And we went crazy researching Scottish history and really knowing. And so at Renaissance fairs, we were playing actual people of the era and actual circumstances that had happened and um, had a great time with that. And our kids spent their preteen and teenage years basically running around Renaissance Fair. Um, but my son once commented to me that it was the worst because he could never do anything wrong because everyone knew his mom and dad. So if he ever did <laughs> anything like a normal teenager, it would get back to us, you know. <laughs> Poor deprived child. <laughs> um, and then finally, while doing that, we had a fair where there was a politics thing and they said, no, Mary Queen of Scots, but they'd already booked us. They'd already paid us for being there. And we're like, suddenly, well, what do we do? All we know how to do is be Mary Queen of Scots in the <laughs> court. And I remembered a book of Scottish stories that I had read when I was like 10 years old. And it was traditional Scottish folk tales and fairy tales. And I said, I think I can remember like a dozen or so of them. And Chip's like, okay, we'll tell stories. So I sat down and wrote super fast scripts for a dozen Scottish folk tales and stories. And we told them. And we were a sensation. Our crowd was always 20 times the size of the royalty that was there. And everyone just kept coming back. Like we had, you know, they had hay bales set up for us and the hay bales never emptied. And it was standing room only for everything. And we went, hey, this is something. So we ended up following that. And it led us eventually away from Renaissance fairs into Scottish games. And there is something like 476 Scottish games in um, North America, in Canada and the US every single year. And of course they're only on weekends. So that tells you that, you know, there are multiple on multiple weekends and all of them have an entertainment budget. And all of them were interested to have us come and do our stories at Scottish games. Um, well, then we're at the Scottish Games and we're hanging out with all these amazing Celtic instrumentalists and singers, and we start adding songs to our bit. So it kind of grew and morphed over the 10 years that we did this. And by the end, we were basically a vaudeville troupe. Um, we would do two or three songs and then stop and tell a story and then do two or three songs and stop and tell a joke. And, you know, and we created two albums. And the brilliant thing was that at one of these events where we were performing was on the Queen Mary here in Los Angeles, which is the old luxury liner that has mm -hmm. been docked in Long Beach as a hotel. And they have a Scottish Games. <laughs> and, 
And we were performing at the Scottish Games. Well, at the time, they also had a British consulate officer that was assigned, um, which was part of the original agreement. Um, I think that stopped like sometime in the mid 90s. But anyway, the British consulate officer came to our show and he says, you guys are brilliant. You really should take this to the fringe. And we're like, the fringe? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's an arts festival in Edinburgh. You should check it out offhand comment so we check out the fringe and sure enough it's like the world's biggest craziest arts festival and the fringe is exactly my kind of art because there was a festival the edinburgh festival it still happens but the festival began and the festival is on invitation only and it's all the highbrow stuff it's opera and symphony and ballet and it's beautiful and it's intensively and it's wonderful and it's amazing but no local Scottish artists were invited to perform in it. And they were a little bit put out by that. And so they formed the Fringe, which was the festival around the festival. And it was a chance to show off local things. Since then, it has grown to this insanity. At any one time in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh between 7 a.m. in the morning and 3 a.m. at night during the month of August, any one point in time, you'll have over 400 performances to choose from. And it is insane. It's like the, the tiny little city of Edinburgh, which is about a half a million people normally, grows to be 4 million people for a month. And it's just, you can't walk anywhere without seeing a celebrity. You, um, every potential kind of art that you would ever want to see from dramatic new Broadway bound plays or musicals to a one woman show in an elevator that literally lasts the length of time for the elevator to go up to the top of the building and come back down. Uh, yeah, you know, so it's just, it's, it's a magical wonderland of art. And we took our show and we got great notices and we won an award. It's called the Glasgow Herald's Little Devil Award. And it's <laughs> for the group that overcomes the most adversity to succeed there. And that was because Chip had appendicitis and went in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so it made us famous. And they say that you're nobody in Edinburgh unless the cabbies are talking about you. And every taxi I got into would be, oh, Mrs. Americano, how's the big man? <laughs> and so it was wonderful. Um, and that was my love affair with the city. So long story short, to get me to, that's when I went to college. My kids graduated high school and my daughter had accelerated. They're not twins, but my daughter was determined to graduate the same year as her older brother. And they did. They both graduated and they both went off to schools in New York City. And the dot-com bust hit and Chip was laid off with a very large severance package. I was a project manager at the time and I was laid off with a fairly good severance package and the two together were enough to change our life. And so Chip said, what would you like to do? I said, I wanna to go to college. I never got to go to college. And he went, okay, just not in California, choose someplace new. I said, hmm, college is <laughs> in Paris, France. College is in Constantinople. Basically every city I ever wanted to travel to, I investigated colleges and applied to a number of them. And um, I got accepted at Edinburgh for music and we moved to Scotland. 
and had 10 wonderful years over there living the best life. It was the best midlife crisis ever. You know, <laughs> he didn't need that red sports car anyway. That, that just that part of your story makes me so jealous. <laughs> and that's after all the rest of it. <laughs> I finally got to Edinburgh the first time I made it to Scotland in October of 2019. And the only thing, the only thing that I did not love about it was that I was only there for three days. Edinburgh is, you know, Edinburgh is the most amazing place. Its face is dour. It's, it's gray. And the, the Scots have a word for the weather. It's drick. And drick is that sort of gray, misty, rain, cold, but not really storming sort of weather. And Edinburgh's drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is the warmest, most congenial and wonderful place. And there are so many little pockets and corners of just absolute joy. You come around a corner and here's a lone violinist playing a jig um, just for the pigeons or, you know, the tourists or whoever's interested. Um, you come around another corner and there's an overhang that protects from the weather and you'll find a writer sitting and, and, and scribbling because the view out across the um, gardens to the new town is just so stunning and gorgeous or vice versa. You're in the new town and the view up to the old town is so gorgeous. And for someone who's creative, Edinburgh calls itself the first city of literature and in fact, that has been ensconced because the UNESCO Corporation mm -hmm. made them the first city of literature. And it's the sort of place where every author's home has a plaque celebrating that author. They have a museum dedicated to writers. Um, and when you say you're writing a book, like the local coffee shops are, oh, please come write it here. <laughs> There's only something like six local coffee shops that claim that Harry Potter was written in them. Um, and it's also true because as a writer, you move from place to place, right? Sometimes it feels right to sit in one coffee shop. The other time it's the library. The next time it's a different coffee shop. Um, but they love it and they welcome writers. And then that's the final piece that Edinburgh has done for that August is they have a book festival, which every author that should be like on your goal list is to get invited to be an author at the Edinburgh Book Fest. They take an entire city square and which is normally a park and they build gigantic pavilion um, tents like wedding tents, right? But they'll put 30 of them inside this park along with a Spiegel tent, which is a German um, wooden sided octagonal tent with a floor and stained glass windows and a full bar <laughs> inside. And all of, and then they have this gigantic book sales tent where all the authors that are appearing there, their books get sold. And once you walk through that main gateway, you're in a wonderland that is 100% dedicated to writing and to books and to the audience being able to meet their heroes and to authors being able to hang out. And you can go to the bar. I sat at, in that bar and I had a whiskey with Neil Gaiman and Ian McEwen, you know, just because I walked in and they oh. were there and I said, do you mind if I join you? And they went, no, come on, sit down. 
Of course they did. <laughs> and it's that type of place. And so all of that inspiration while I was studying music um, really, really seeped in. And I decided I was finally going to try and write a book of my own. So I wrote my first novel in Scotland and it's going to probably stay there and never see the light of day <laughs> as most first novels should. Um, but that experience of being in the place where every single person you met that thought you were writing a novel, instead of oftentimes here in the United States, you get, oh, well, let me tell you my idea. Right. But there, it's, you're writing? What are you writing about? I'm so curious and I'm so excited. And when does it come out? And so, um, yeah, that was a great place to start a writing career. <laughs> sure. And even the train station is named after... It's Waverly. So it's named after the yeah. Waverly novels. And uh, Sir, Sir um, Walter Scott has this gigantic rocket-shaped monument. Yes, the Gothic rocket. With a bazillion <laughs> steps in it, um, which has incredible views. It's worth the steps to get up there and see. But yeah, again, authors are celebrated. There's a, an entire tour devoted to walking in Stevenson's footsteps. And Robert Louis Stevenson, when he was writing Treasure Island, would walk the 10 miles to Queens Ferry to the Dawes Inn to sit in this inn that reminded him of what he'd seen on his travels in South Carolina and other places of the, the pirate inns and the places that pirates would come to drink. And the Dawes Inn reminded me of him of that. And so it was worth it to him to take the 10 mile hike one way. So 20 miles a day, he would walk and there's a tour that you can do that. And you can start at Robert Louis Stevenson house. You can walk to Queens Ferry. You can have a drink and, and, and uh, brunch at the Dawes Inn. If you don't have the legs to walk back, they'll have a bus to take you back to Edinburgh. Um, but, you know, and so you really have that feeling like you're close to the muse, whatever it is that that causes us writers to want to create a story that hasn't existed before. And Edinburgh is a great place to get that bug. And it definitely bit me and bit me hard. <laughs> and I'm intrigued that, you know, you went over there for a music degree and music is the yeah. thing that you seem to have done the least before you went. It is. Well, you know, I was uh, trained by ear, but one of the things, my husband was a classical musician. He was trained. Um, he started playing the trombone when he was six and he was in the youth orchestra and then in the all Colorado state youth orchestra. And then when they moved to Wyoming, he was first chair in the high school orchestra. And then he played in the local symphony. So he had that classical training and I needed to study music to get that language because I have a very instinctual response to English, to, to music. I mean, that I can say, oh, this melody line is, is communicating the following feelings. And he doesn't. For him, it's everything's kind of in that bass register of where the trombone sits. And he thinks more in terms of rhythm. And he was having great difficulty translating that to his composing. So part of me getting a music degree was getting the language so I could speak to him. So instead of saying, okay, the uh-uh bit, you got to punch that up so it has more bottom and more oomph. And he's like, what does that mean? <laughs> 
<laughs> and so I had to go to university so I could learn, okay, the ground bass needs to move at a higher tempo and you need to have an accented beat on the third and, uh, you know, and the fifth or whatever. And so I had to go and get that language so I could, could help talk that because we thought for a long time that we were going to write musicals together. And we tried one of those um, while we were still in Monterey doing all the theater. We tried writing a musical together. We did write it, but it was a hair's breadth away from divorce <laughs> because oh. our two languages were so far mm. apart and the, the frustration at not being able to communicate to each other. And especially since I wrote all the words for that, trying to get him to write music that matched the emotion that was in the words when I didn't have the language for it. So that was the biggest part of the reason for the music. And from that, it's been very successful. We have a long range opera project that we've been kind of working on, on and off ever since that we will finish one day. Um, and it's a television show style opera that will come in 10 episodes and have the sort of episodic structure that television shows do um, to tell a story, which has never been done in opera. But our thought was how brilliant to have like 45 minute operas where people could drop in at lunch and see an installment and then come back the next month and see another installment and then the next month. And it might be a way to help modernize the operatic form um, you know, and keep it from being just the land of old people. Because all symphony and, right. and opera and ballet are really struggling. Ballet, not as much, because ballet has been better about adjusting to modern forms and, you know, bringing in hip-hop dance and other such things mm -hmm. and taking women off of their, their points so they're not always on point so that they can develop more supple muscles to do some of the other things. And, you know, so ballet has adapted, but opera and symphony are still going by the Victorian model of, you know, high art where it's, it's an evening in, in, in fine clothing and, you know, rich people basically. And that's not, right. a, that's not sustainable for the future. So. Mm -mm. And it, it makes it so much harder for kids to actually develop an interest. Well, of course, because, because there's that barrier. Well, and then you're also, especially with the opera, you're asking today's modern kids to accept a level of misogyny, which mm -hmm. is a hundred years out of date. Yes. And why would they spend their very, very few entertainment dollars going to see something that's going to make them angry? <laughs> that's a really good point. You know, so it's going to have to update and symphony needs to update too. For God's sake, I adore Beethoven, but it is time to stop playing Beethoven. You know, it's, there are a bazillion recordings of Beethoven. It could be a once in a year spectacular where, okay, we're doing Beethoven here. But the fact that there are so, so many amazing modern composers that can't even get played. They can't get right. a job. All they can do is teach and hope. And we're killing our modern composers because of our adoration for the past. So anyway, right. that's, a, that's a whole other soapbox. <laughs> 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 Probably be a whole other podcast. Yeah. I have a few of those. <laughs> yeah. So then how did you end up deciding that you wanted to write a podcast? Speaking of those. Oh, I didn't decide that was a, that was a, okay, screw you movement. Um, <laughs> I got an agent on the basis of my third manuscript and that agent told me that they loved the book 
but they didn't think they could sell it because it was weird. But what they thought was, if you can write something that's a little more genre specific, a little more mainstream, then we can get you out there and this would be a kick-ass second book. So I tried to write something more mainstream and my agent thought it was more mainstream, but the publishers said, it's a little too far out there. It's not like, where would we shelve it? And this is a big problem within our current publishing model because we write from our hearts and from our souls and from whatever inspires us. And then it gets packaged and it has to fit on a particular shelf. Mm -hmm. And we're beginning to break down some of those boundaries um, over the last say 30 years, there's beginning to be some break. So you can have elves in space, for example. Um, but it's just barely beginning to, to break through. And there still is a lot of the mechanism of publishing itself, which is all about, we need to know, is this a cracker? Is it a cookie or is it a jar of pasta sauce? Because it's going to go on a shelf of one of those things. And if you did a sweet and salty cracker cookie, they're going to go, we can't shelf it. You know, we don't know where to put it. And so after six of that exact same love her writing, love her voice, this book is incredible. It can't be her first book. I was despairing because I'm like, I'm never going to be able to write anything that's normal. Obviously I'm not normal. <laughs> and I was going to give up writing books and which was a painful thought, but not wholly painful because I've changed, you know, I've, I've done a lot of different kinds of art over my life. And so I, I wasn't going to quit being creative. It was just that maybe books aren't the thing for me. And my husband said, no, no, no. I really, really do believe. And he's read everything I've ever written. And he's like, I really do believe that this is the right career for you. I believe that you are a writer in your soul, but maybe you just need to try a different kind of writing. Choose something else. And at the time, I had just gotten into listening to Welcome to Night Vale. And that was crack because it opened the door to all of these other really great audio dramas out there. And I went, I can write an audio drama. <laughs> so I sat down and I cracked out the first script. And you had asked me where my creativity comes from. And in actuality, it's just my psycho brain. Um, dreams a lot. And I know that that's super cliched and everyone's like, oh, this idea came to me in a dream. And, but I had a dream and I often dream in third person. I dream as a character. And in this dream, I was a Victorian woman. I had the big Edwardian pompadour height, you know, bun, uh, fluffed up late Victorian, early Edwardian clothing, um, heavy skirts and constricting uh, stays and then this heavy canvas apron over the top of it. And my sleeves were held up with the kind of garters that bartenders would use to keep their sleeves out of things or things. And I am firing up an electricity dynamo like the early ones that they had that they began to use at the when they very first used electricity in operating rooms. And I was firing it up and applying the wands. And at that time, they had they didn't have the paddles that our EEG machines have now. They had like wands, which were long rods. And the electricity traveled through a spiral wire around the rod into the tip of the rod. And then that's how they would use it to cauterize wounds and such things. 
Uh, so someone like a soldering iron, if you know what a soldering iron looks like, but they're <laughs> just big. And I was taking those rods and I was applying them directly to my chest and it electrocuted me. And it, I would feel the pain of the electricity entering my body and I would lose consciousness. And that's when I would wake up and I would be gasping, sitting up in bed, gasping for air. And after this was about a month after Chip had said, write something else. And I began to consider a podcast. And after a week of me electrocuting myself every single night in my sleep, waking up, gasping, waking him up, and then telling him I had the, the scientist electric, uh, electrocution dream again, he finally said, well, you just write that to figure out why a scientist would voluntarily electrocute themselves. And that was the genesis of Sage and Savant. So I wrote that first script and I recruited friends um, out of my writing group that his, Justin, our narrator, just has such a beautiful voice. And I went, would you like to be a narrator in a podcast? <laughs> and it was the first time he'd ever done anything like that either. And we produced the first script and we got like, it wasn't huge, but we had like 300 listens. And it was like, oh, now they're going to expect another one. <laughs> Funny how that works. So that started my four-year journey of learning how to write an audio drama whilst writing an audio drama for an audience that was already engaged and demanding more. So um, I'm currently working on the next one. I'm writing the whole thing in advance. We are not doing that month by month thing again. <laughs> yeah I would think month by month would be really stressful in a hurry um you know I'm good with deadlines I kind of like the pressure of deadlines but it, it does mean that there are some stumbles in the writing along some stumbles in the production and it definitely was very hard on Chip because often he would get the script um you know say on the 27th we'd do the read through and the recording and then he'd have like two days to try and get the whole thing together. And that's just not fair to your sound engineer either. So don't be like me, kids. Advance right. Give plenty of time. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, you know, do be like me. Get a wild idea and follow it because you never know where it's going to lead you. Amen to that. But you guys pretty much, I mean, assuming that nothing's changed in three years. So tell me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but I remember, you know, you saying 98% of it, you do yourselves in your own, yeah. at that time, at least one bedroom apartment, which just blew my mind, yeah. you know, how you can make all of that work. Because when, when I first started talking to you, you were doing a Foley workshop for how to do sound effects. Yes. And the idea of all of this sound effects and stuff and, and the recording and everything fitting into a one bedroom apartment that you presumably <laughs> were not necessarily tripping over all the time, just absolutely still staggers me. So are you still doing it that way? Is yeah. that just the um, groove? That's kind of the groove. One thing that was absolutely brilliant about being pregnant teens and getting married way too young is that we didn't have time for life to teach us any better. <laughs> and so we formed attitudes of, well, it's got to be possible. Just make it happen. Uh, both of us. And that has been a boon to so many things that we have done all along. When it comes to the storage and that sort of thing, um, another strange piece of my life, my father was a professional sound man. 
And he was a sound man in the days when concert venues provided the sound instead of the bands providing the sound. So what would happen is that the concert venue would contract the sound man, then the bands would roll in and they would have a contract that gave us what their setup was. And we would set up the sound and do it and coordinate with the band and get it all done. Um, and then provide the sound man on the soundboard to do that. And that was my childhood. And we traveled in a converted um, semi-trailer that the very front of it had been converted to a small camper for the family to sleep in. And the whole back of it was our, how to fit in all the equipment. And um, we put something like $4 million worth of sound equipment into the back of that trailer in a puzzle piece, stack it in and pull it out sort of way that now you give me a small space, a closet, and I can puzzle piece in an entire bedroom's worth of everything into that one little space, you know, just by higgledy peeledy putting it all in and doing that. So recording then becomes a, okay, it's a recording day. Open the closet, pull all the bits out. <laughs> we have a we have a pop up booth that we've um, constructed um, that suspends the foam and hangs it up, and um, get everything set up and do it, and then record. And then once recording is done, pack it all back away and stick it in its little closet. Um, <laughs> And so that is a huge, but one of the things I don't mean to be a control freak. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think Chip would say I'm a control freak, but I think he would say that I have an overly ambitious imagination mm. and I will imagine something and how to do it. And then I'm determined to do it that way. And so there are many, many things that we developed that are just no one else has done, um, or it's not usual because I went, it should be possible. I'm going to make it possible. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that, and, and there's a great freedom in that for the next thing I'm wanting to try my first writer's room where I want to, to be the, um, executive producer or the, the story runner. Um, but allow other writers to write and see how doing it from that point. And then Chip has also been talking about how, um, you know, in Hollywood, when they do the sound department, there is like half a dozen um, engineers that all have different specialties. And he's talking about seeing if we can't put together something the same for um, a podcast production, an independent podcast production, where we have different remote engineers that are adding different pieces to what's happening. So we'll see if we can pull it off. I'm, I'm pitching to get funding as we speak. Wow. I mean, so. if anybody can pull it off, it's so <laughs> obviously you guys, which Aww. is what's so great. About, I mean, seriously, I mean, just just like revisiting all of these things in the last hour, it's mind blowing how much you've done. And I think what you said a little while ago is so spot on that if you don't know any better and just decide it's got to be possible, we just have to figure out how, you're so much more likely to come up with all sorts of things that most people would sit there and say, you can't do that. Or even why would you do that? Or, you know, you can never make that work. It's going to cost you too much money. It's going to be ridiculous and it'll never work. And it, 
I think that so often we don't notice how often we shut ourselves down that way. We do. Whereas if we don't shut ourselves down and we say, okay, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm going to assume that, you know, I could figure out how it's possible and put, you know, some thought and some creativity and ask around and see if I can figure out the pieces. You might manage just to pull off the impossible that, you know, everybody else would have just never gotten past the first sentence. You know, there's an old saying that poverty is the mother of invention. And um, one of the things that I think is truly remarkable about the independent podcasting space is how many fantastic inventions people are coming up with to deal with the fact that they're trying to do this all on their own and they're poor. And um, I think there's a great flourishing that can come out of that. And it's something that gets lost um, in the bigger picture if you're thinking, oh, well, you know, I, I, don't I can't do this because I don't have money. Um, money is a great way to do things. I'm, I'm, I'm down with money, you know. <laughs> I have a friend who is an art designer in Hollywood who is often on like huge budget things. Currently, he's in New Zealand with the new Lord of the Rings TV show, for example. And that nice. one has crazy amounts of money thrown at it. And so his art direction is really easy. But one of the ones that he had the most fun with was one of the films that he had the smallest budget. And that was the Team America World Police, the puppet one. <laughs> and he remembers most fondly spending like three days in a row with very little sleep and a whole lot of caffeine and some really crazy tunes with his entire crew building Paris out of toothpicks and matchsticks. Wow. And, you know, and, and that the end run, the entire city of Paris shows up in that movie that was done. It was, was basically done on a schoolroom budget for, Hey kids build a mission or, you know, <laughs> and, but for him, that's one of the things where he feels like it, it was his creative vision in its truest form. And I think that's something, you know, the lesson of that for me has always been that money is not creative vision. And implementation is not always made better by money. Sometimes ingenuity creates mm -hmm. better implementation. And so knowing that that's the case, then trusting that it's okay to have, a, you know, as I said, a wild hair that I follow. Yeah. By the way, did anyone what? else ever think that that statement, having a wild hair meant the hair on your heads? <laughs> I was like, that's a good question. I was 35 years old when having a wild hair that they said it's a wild rabbit because the wild hairs run erratically mm -hmm. and you cannot predict their trajectory. A, a domesticated hair will run in a straight line, but a wild hair doesn't. And that's why that, and I had always thought it was the hair on your head. And I was always attributing it to my hair, which I have an excessive abundance of. <laughs> I think the only time I've ever seen it written down, it was spelled like the hair on your head. Right. But that's not it. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a wild hair as in a bunny rabbit. So there we go. Blowing people's illusions. <laughs> there you go. Well, and you know, I was just going to say that when you were talking about trust and, and that, you know, things will not necessarily respond to things like money the way that you want them to. That's the other thread that I'm seeing through all of this history with you is just 
hey, let's try this or let's expand this into this other thing. And, you know, even with the novels that you couldn't sell, you know, just the, the idea that Chip is saying, find another way to write this. And then you land on the podcast and hey, there you go. I think that there's there's so much of that that's so important to just say, you know, this may not turn out to be the right way, but I'll figure out the right way eventually. You well, know, here's not- the funny thing. Sage and Savant got me a four book contract um, to write tie-in novels to go with Sage and Savant. And then from that, um, it got me like right now I'm, I live in downtown LA and I've been getting meetings with funders and a lot of Hollywood right now is turning their face towards audio drama as good, um, you know, trial balloons for different story ideas. And so currently the pitch that has gotten me the most time, and I'm very, you know, I, I went from getting in the door to first preliminary pitch, and now we're an advanced pitch and it may get made. Um, that idea is actually one of the books that my agent adored that, the, that they couldn't sell. And so the thing is, it's very entirely possible because that book is a big sort of epic fantasy alternate world reality book it's very possible that if that gets made into a podcast, the company that's looking at it right now is one that's specifically using podcasts as feeders into prestige television projects. So it's entirely possible that I could have that one story that wasn't enough at one time be the thing now that launches me into getting a, a, you know, Hollywood career as it were, and the book will still come out because it's part of that world that I just had to take a different route to get there. Listen to us now, children. Never throw away a draft or a manuscript. (laughs) Never do. Never do. I mean, the thing is that the book as it was written, I would rewrite now because my writing is stronger. Mm -hmm. But the story, the core of it is still strong. It's still a really good idea and it still has legs and it has even more legs now um, because it's a um, gender accepting sex positive view of the world and writing that, you know, I guess it was almost 15 years ago when I first wrote it and we weren't quite as ready on a world stage to be gender accepting, you know, mm-hmm. um, sex affirming uh, people, but we're moving that way because we're realizing how much harm we've done by not being gender affirming, how much harm we've right. done by, by shaming people. Um, and so we're moving towards that now. So it could have just been that I wrote it too soon, you know, that, that the world mm-hmm. wasn't ready for the story then, but they are now. And that's what I find a lot because we authors have to, we have to tap into that cultural reality and timeline zeitgeist and that awareness of the past, the present, and the potential future in order to create our stories. And it's entirely possible that we're just tapping in on a wavelength that is advanced of where culture is. But culture catches up, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We wouldn't imagine the things we imagine if it wasn't for the fact that culture is, is moving that way, so. Yeah, yeah, so. Your manuscript may just need another decade before everybody's ready for it. It may just need, you know, it may need a podcast to open up the idea and get people thinking and 
you know, who knows where it goes from there. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's, I, I just, I just love this story as a fabulous example of what the title of this podcast is about, you know, follow your curiosity, see where it leads you. Cause it's probably going to send you in the right direction. Well, the thing is, I actually believe that curiosity and um, those sort of instincts we have for exploration are a part of human DNA. It's, it's intrinsic. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a, a metaphor that I use, which is that if you imagine humanity still back in the caves, in that cave, there's going to be a certain, certain percentage of people who are restless and must leave the cave and they go out and some of them die because it's dangerous outside of the cave. Some of them explore and find things like better ways, better place to live or better things to happen. Then there's going to be a percentage which are never going to leave the cave. The cave is comfort and the cave is where they belong. And the vast majority of us are somewhere in the middle. And when the time comes, we're going to decide between those two pulling factors, the okay time to leave the cave with the people who've already gone out and found an oasis and a meadow where we can live peacefully with plentiful food and nobody's cold and damp like it is in the cave. And there's always going to be some people who are too afraid to leave the cave. And some of us are going to decide to stay there. And that is an evolutionary advantage because you can't get all of us at once. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's basically from a predatory natural standpoint. That is a good evolutionary advantage. The problem is too often in the modern world in civilized world, we let the stay in the cave people be the voice. Yes. And by letting them be the voice, we're actually inhibiting our evolutionary principles and our evolutionary ideas and too many of us. And then what happens is we come to a breaking point where the people who've said it has to stay exactly the same, it has to stay exactly the same, have had control for too long. And then we break it and we break it in violence and viciousness that the, the, the um, uh, French Revolution is one of those great examples mm-hmm. of where we broke it, you know, and we don't really have to do that if we stop prioritizing the voices of the people who went to stay and we equalize for those that are out and those that want to stay and we find that happy mean, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so creatively, there are a lot more voices that will tell you no than will mm-hmm. tell you yes. And from that standpoint, I've adopted the, hey, come out of the cave, people, it's wonderful out here, be brave, <laughs> you know, do things because we need more voices like that, telling people they can, because there's a bazillion voices that will tell people they can't. And so, yeah, telling yourself, yes, giving yourself permission is huge. And here's the fact of it. I didn't start off being a good writer. If I read you a page out of my juvenile melodrama, you would laugh yourself silly. If I read you, if I gave you one of my high school one acts, they are so pompous and overblown and moralizing like many teenage thoughts are. Mm-hmm. Um, th- it's not art. It, if I read you a, something out of my very first book, it was like, intriguing some good sentences but it doesn't seem (laughs) to all hold together 
And gradually, the more I have written and the more I have done and the more I've explored that, the stronger my writing has become and the more confident I am as a writer. And the problem is we are comparing ourselves. You know, we have Margaret Atwood and then we write our first sentence and look at Margaret Atwood and go, oh, I'll never be a writer. Right. You know, The Handmaid's Tale was not Margaret Atwood's first shot, baby. <laughs> you know, And it wasn't her first draft that you read either. And it wasn't her first draft and it had many eyes helping her perfect it. Mm-hmm. And so we have to stop trying to compare ourselves to these finished books and say, if I can't do that just out of my own head, I'm no good. It's like, no, that's not true. (laughs) Right. It's just not true. You know, practice does well, if not make perfect, it definitely perfects. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think the perfect actually exists. Yeah. But yeah, you, 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 you can't not learn as you go. Exactly. You know, even the second day that you write something is not going to be the same as the first day. Well, and, you know, gradually over time, I have become more confident of, um, you know, completing things in in a time frame that I can expect. Um, and over time, I've become better at estimating like chapter you know, just even mm-hmm. when I'm within it, I think I'm about coming to where I should end the chapter. Maybe I better check my word count to be sure. Yeah, I really need to kind of find a place to end the scene. So even if I'm free writing, if I'm not writing from an outline, I still have some instincts that I've developed. But again, that's instincts that I've developed over practicing. Right. And, right. you know, so, and I'm a big one for practice. Practice is a brilliant thing to do, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, I've, from time to time, I have gone on Quora. I haven't recently, but for a couple of years, you know, I do a spurt here every now and then. And I was literally getting questions like, how many words should my chapters be? Mm-hmm. And I would just kind of sit there and blink at the screen going, you're serious, aren't you? And and it was hard to find a way to say as many words as they need to be, no more, no less, without it sounding really flippant and sarcastic. But that's the only honest answer. And every book has different chapter lengths. And even within a book, different scenes are going to require uh, mm-hmm. that you make a chapter longer. And sometimes short and sharp is a great way to deliver, you know, a proper shock to the audience when you want to. So, um, yeah, it, the chapter is going to be what the chapter is going to be. Um, where you develop a sense for it is you begin to understand how chapters need to ebb and flow and you'll begin to feel that. And again, even if you're free writing, you'll, you'll feel that, that ebb, you know, the flow has been going great and you feel that ebb on the horizon. You want to end it before you ebb so that that you, they have a reason to pick up the book the next day. Right. (laughs) And so you begin to feel those places. Yeah. And that's what it's about. It's not about how many words should it be and what font should I use? And cause I've had that one too. And it, you know, all of, all of those little details, eventually, if those are the questions you're asking yourself, I start to wonder if you're just trying to find excuses not to actually put words on the page. That can be. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, you know, we, again, we're very good at, at discouraging ourselves and we've been listening to those dark voices from the back of the cave that say don't venture out for Mm -hmm. so long and it feels very exposing to just jump in 
Um, I have a thing, you know, there, I, I'm sure you've heard the argument between plotting and pantsing, yep. you know, and I'm a plotzer. <laughs> um, and the reason I call myself a plotzer is because I like a basic framework for my story. And so I will create one and I call these my tent poles, which is I'll sit and I'll say, I'm going to tell a story about a boy and his dog. Okay, so I have to decide some things right away. And based on the long tradition of stories about boys and his dogs, one of the first things I have to decide is, is the dog going to die? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, <laughs> and I'll decide that. And even if I say no, the dog's not going to die. I have to ask myself, but is the threat of the dog dying a good climax point? And oftentimes it can be because we like stories where we worry for the protagonists and where it comes to a, oh, are they going to survive? And then we love mm -hmm. it when they do survive. And that's entirely valid for dogs as well. So, okay, I like that. I'm going to use that. So that's my climax pull. That's my tallest pull. Now, everything else that happens, the boy and the dog go swimming and the dog experiences water for the first time. That's a good pull. That would make an interesting scene. Okay, you have that. Um, the boy and the dog run away from home and they're lost and they're scared. That's a good poll. That's you can hang a scene on that. So I'll think of half a dozen polls. And then based on the climax and based on the starting point, which is boy gets a dog, that's the very first poll. I'll arrange all the other polls in a pleasing order. That's it. That's my plot. And then I'll sit and I'll just write to my heart's content. And all I'm doing is writing from one pole to the next. And it doesn't matter. All sorts of adventures can happen in between. You know, mm -hmm. all sorts of things can switch up and do it as long as I get to that pole. And when I know that basic outline trajectory, then I'm really free to write a very vibrant and strong and powerful story. And it keeps me from... If I write the whole outline, if I write every scene by scene of what's going to happen, my brain will tell me you've written that book. Right. <laughs> and then I'm bored and I don't want to continue to write. Right. And which is funny because rewriting doesn't cause that for me. But first rewriting is like is like putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. You now it's figuring out what fit the first time and what didn't and how you have to change it and make it all work. Yeah. 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 But for some reason on first draft, if I extensively outline, I'm done. I've written the whole story. Right. If I know how it ends, you know, if I, I can't know write it. it. And often that's my climax. My climax will be a will or, or won't question. So will the dog and the boy both survive or won't they? I don't know. I'm going to write and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a, um, book about a witch that the climax point is she's arrested and the witch finders have her and they're going to burn her. And I don't know whether they succeed in burning her and it becomes a tragedy or whether she's going to figure out something at the last moment that saves her from this government apparatus, which is so strong and is, has burned thousands of women before her. I don't know. Cause I haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> Right. You know, and that tension keeps me writing as well. So um, if anyone wants to hit me up on Twitter, I'm at Eddie Louise on Twitter. I actually have um, a couple of like 
handout sheets with diagrams and things of how I do my tentpole plotting. So um, I'm happy to share those because that's been really successful for me and a number of people that I've introduced it to. Cool. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you. we could, we could sit here for another two hours. We absolutely could and not get bored and not run out of things to say, but I feel like this is a good place to stop. So I think it might be, I think, I, I think that we should, <laughs> I, I, I could, I could go on. Um, but yeah, it's definitely best not to, uh, yeah, there comes a point, but, you know, I have a friend in Scotland who used to always say to me, a, a, a quite elderly man, and he would say, Oh, I'm a font of useless information. And that's pretty much what I feel like sometimes. Like I have <laughs> so much stuff packed in my head and I can just like spew it on command. Um, but yeah, it's 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 best to to stop while we're ahead. And um, if I could say any one last thing to your to your um, listeners, it's that don't be afraid, follow that wild hair, do that yeah. thing that you just kind of feel led to, but it doesn't seem smart. It's okay. Worst that's going to happen is that you'll be back exactly where you are right now, where you won't have that thing, you know? And so it's always worth it to try and make something new, whether it works or not. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing with, you know, asking someone for something you know, whether it's mm -hmm. an interview or, you know, if they want to go out for coffee, whatever it is, if they say, no, what do you, what have you lost that you already had? Nothing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Nancy, so, thank you so much. That's this week's episode. Thanks again to Eddie Louise for joining me and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.